Okay, welcome to the second episode of what we're calling season two of the Meg podcast. Um, bit of a different content in this one from the first one, a bit of a mix. Um, we're going to go have a historical section, um, which we will include some sample armies um, in the way we've done before. Um, in this case, we are going to be looking at the Mongol Great Raid of 1220 to 1223, um, which will be uh, led by Matt, who is going to give us the benefit of his knowledge on Eastern Europe type areas and the incoming Mongols. Um, following that, we're going to have a bit of a retrospective and look back at the recent Deventio 4 competition that was held, at, held in Derby. Um, and we will be, for those who don't yet know, we will answer the question of who performed best out of myself and Matt, because we both uh, participated. And so Richard gets away with that one. He, 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 he can claim, I would have finished better than both of you. But he was away at the Society of Ages conference and uh, he, he might just want to, towards the end, give us a, an idea of what went on at that conference and whether, because I think some of the um, talks that were done there might actually um, give us some ideas for future podcasts and maybe other things, but we'll, we'll see how times, time goes on that. Um, supporting material for the podcast, including all the lists we're going to discuss today, uh, will be on my blog as usual, and we'll publish the link to that when we put the link up to this podcast, uh, when it all goes live. Um, as I said, Matt's going to lead on it. Richard and I will be chipping in about armies uh, to take some of the burden off Matt along the way, and maybe maybe the odd, the odd comment as well. So, as I said... Because of the way we're structuring it, we're going to sort of interleaver some of the um, army stuff in amongst the historical narrative, um, just to see how it goes, really. So if people have any feedback on that, whether it works or whether it doesn't, um, that will be uh, very, very much appreciated. So I'd like to keep things um, fresh if we can, and also interesting for you, the valued listener. So anyway, without further ado, 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 rather than adieu, it's not end time yet, um, over to Matt. Good evening all. Um, right, well, first off, advance apologies if I mangle any pronunciations. My choice has been to go with modern Mongolian for names, and any straying from that is entirely due to my own ineptitude and incompetence. So basically we have Zhengis, Subadai, Ziev, and Chuchai, for examples. So, as I say, any, any, any blinding mistakes are entirely my own. So, to start, let, let's have a quick discussion on sources for this period for the Great Raid 1220 to 1223. Um, there are four major, almost primary sources for the Mongols during the Genghis lifetime, and particularly the period around the Great Raid. Uh, we have the Secret Histories of the Mongols, which was compiled no later than about 1250 AD. And although it's slightly inconsistent in its treatment of facts, as it seems to be more prone on building a good story rather than a straight history, it's uh, a fairly balanced account from what we can see. Uh, the other three major sources all appear to share a common source of detail, so may have based on each other or have a lost source that nobody's seen or aware of. The first one is the Collective Chronicles, which is written by a Persian historian called Rashid al-Din. Uh, we then have the, the Yanxi, which is the official dynastic history of the ruling Mongols in China, which was completed sometime around 1370, so it's quite late. 
Uh, all right, this one takes some saying. Shen Wu Ti Zen Sheng Lu, which is similar to the secret histories, but is regarded as a better chronological uh, account and is more detail oriented. I also think it's a triple word score in Scrabble, but don't, don't <laughs> quote me on that. But anyway, um, additionally, for this particular period, there are various Rus chronicles. Uh, the Chronicle of Novgorod and Hypatian chronicles are the two significant ones. Beyond that, there's a few other Islamic scholars out there that did a few uh, minor bits, but those are the four that most people use. So having said that, if you pick up any book on Genghis or his military campaigns or his generals, you'll be hard pressed to find any true consistency in the sequence of events or the events themselves or even the participants. It's basically a free-for-all. It's very hard to pin down a, a consistent narrative. So with that in mind, I've tried to put a balance for you together, but I've also noted a few of the variations as we go through. I've also done a select bibliography of books, which uh, Nick will add to the podcast notes for what I used for this, this, this article in essence. So the background to cover Genghis and the Mongol rise to the point of Subadai and Zieb's great raid is probably two or three podcasts on its own. So I'll just set the scene. Genghis has been had been drawn into the conflicts around the former lands of the Kwarakatan Empire. Uh, this sits across modern Uzbekistan and points both to the east and west of that. This brought Genghis in turn into contact and conflict with the Shah Muhammad, the, uh, I've got to try and get this right, Khwarezmian uh, Empire. So in about 1218, an accidental or at least avoidable pitch battle happened between a flying column of Mongol Tumans under Zhuzhai and uh, Subadai. And they hit an army of the Shia. Uh, this basically lit a fuse that by the end of the war saw a merchant caravan that was under the um, personal protection of Genghis, uh, a series of dead Mongolian envoys, and basically the delivery of a very politely worded note of form conflict, which basically said, prepare for war, for I am coming against you with a host you cannot withstand. That was Genghis's polite way of telling the Shah he was in trouble. So the campaign that followed would again be at least a good podcast in length to describe. So to sketch it out, Genghis and his generals launch a multi-pronged campaign that effectively destroys the Khwarezmian Empire, forces the Shah into a prolonged flight that led to his death early 1221. Uh, the death of the Shah, though, did very little to reduce the ferocity of the ongoing campaign, and it would take the best part of a decade to subdue the various Khwarezmian leaders and their armies in what became a cauldron of alliances, treachery and battles. And it turned the Shah's son, Jalal Adin, into a, well, take your pick, a notorious brigand or a heroic freedom fighter, depending on which side of the fence you were standing. Uh, he inflicted several significant defeats on the Mongols, created and subsequently lost several power bases in his, con in, in his continued resistance against the Mongols. And at that point, it's probably really idea to have a look at the lists for the, the Khwarezmian Empire. Okay. And... By some strange coincidence, I've been dealt the hand, or did I volunteer for the Khwarezmians? Um, them being essentially a, a steppe-type um, Muslim army um, from what, well, yeah, I think Khwarezmian essentially comes from Khwarezmian and such related descriptions of the uh, Transoxes 
area and northern Iran. Um, so we've got we've got a, a basically a horse army. It's, so it's in many ways it's going to look somewhat like the the Mongols. However, it, it is does have its, its nice differences, and certainly within um, the Meg world, uh, the way the list being drawn up, it's uh, it's quite unusual, makes it very interesting. Um, just as so the background stuff, um, generals are professional. Um, so it is a, it is a well organized they were well organized army. Um, in the period that's being covered by Matt's history here, um, I'll just pull out the bits that refer to that. Um, oddly, they can have elephants, um, and as you know, as we as we know, look at Megalis, elephants always at the top of a list. The biggest beasts come first. They can only have two. They're just normal elephants, tribal loose, protected shove. Um, but you know, and there must be a question of whether two is particularly useful. But there you are. It's a, it's an unusual addition to these armies. The main force of the Khwarazmians are what we call lancers. Um, now these are the troops that in many other armies are the armoured horse archers with, with bow. However, the Khwarazmians were actually quite aggressive and there's at least one account which talks of them after um, charging, certainly charging quite vigorously and washing their, bloodying, bloodying their spears. And I think they might have even been to the stage of say, washing them in a river after the battle. Um, they certainly seem to be a bit more aggressive than, say, the Seljuks who had preceded them. So th these are categorised in the list as cavalry formed loose, superior protected, experienced bow, charging lancer, shoot and charge. So there you, see, you see they've got, they've got the bow, they've still got quality bowmen, not skilled, but perfectly competent bowmen. But instead of having the short spear, they've got charging lancer. But also shoot and charge, which makes them really quite useful when fighting other step types. And in you know the context we're looking at today, Mongols, because the shoot and charge can slow down horse archers. Um, just a quick explanation: the charging lancer would normally mean you have force charges. However, because of the experienced bow, they don't, um, and it does mean that they always have to pay to charge. So you know, bit swings and roundabouts. They're more controllable, but Equally, you end up paying cards for it. Um, these can be supported by some Iranian Atabeg Askaris, who are your more traditional um, Iranian Muslim um, horse arch, armoured horse archers, drilled loose, average protected, experienced bow, short spear. Sorry, I should have said the, the lancers in the list, it's eight to 24 of those. So you can have a, a good chunk. You, can, you, know, you could have four units of six, for example. You can have a couple of units of the Atabeg Askaris. Um, after that, we go on to Kankali and other horse archers. Your normal form, flexible, average, unprotected, experienced bow, horse archer, uh, common to the step. Um, unfortunately, from one point of view, you can't make any of these experienced. You know, so again, makes it different. Um, they can have a unit of Kitan cavalry. Um, drilled loose, average, protected, experienced bow, short spear, optional melee expert. You know, so you can you can bulk out your shooty cavalry types, and they can also fight. Um, the list can have various bits of infantry, some including some Kankali foot, who are just tribal loose, average protected, devastating charges. Um, but you know, those who know me will know I'm going to say, but why would you bother? But they are there, and they can have some some of those. Um, they can have some skirmishing cavalry, who can be Cantabrian as well. Not to 12 of those. Um, 
And they can also have in the period we're looking at Persian cavalry who are similar to the Iranian Atabegs, um, but don't have the short spear. They're just average protected experienced bow. Um, again, they can have some, some infantry bowmen. Some of them are skirmishers. Some of them are tribal loose. Um, and those can be mounted on camels, as can the skirmish ones. Um, again, I falls into the not sure why you'd want to. And lastly, in this army, they you know on the steps here, we've still got a lot of Turks out there. They can have a Turkoman contingent, which would need to be commanded by an Allied general. Eight to thirty-two bases of form flexible, average, unprotected, experienced bow, and you can make up to half of these skilled. Sorry. So they are. It's a it's a Iranian Muslim um, horse army, but with that difference of the the main noble type cavalry are charging lancer instead of um, being your more skirmishy types. And you never know that could be the reason why they had a long and at times successful fight against the Mongols. Anyway, enough of that. I think it's time to go back to Matt to take up the history once more. Just, just to say on that list quickly, it's one of the few lists that has quite a high um, minimum to it. Two large blocks of eight cavalry. But, but that's by, by the by. But, uh, something I yes, but I, I think I'd say they're sort of ones you'd want to take. Although oh, you, true. Yeah, maybe the cankly of horse archers who can't be skilled are the one you go, oh, well, I wish some of them could be skilled. But, you know, you pay your money, take your chance. It's always better to have this variety in lists. It's also one of the armies that has quite a large block of superior cavalry. So um, that's uh, that makes it attractive, I think it's probably fair to say. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one I've, I've sort of got on my list to try sometime. Anyway, sorry, back to Matt. Yep, sorry, that, that was me distracting myself from myself. But anyway, <clears throat> right. So, Subadai suggested an incursion around the Caspian Sea to attack the human tribes from an unexpected direction, whilst Zhuzhai approached from the south. The sources suggest that very much to Subadai's um, surprise, Genghis sorry, Genghis, now I'm doing it, uh, released 20,000 men for the purpose and set a three-year limit on this independent command. Along with Zev, Zubadai used the Azerbaijani capital, uh, sorry, city of uh, Tabriz as the base for launching this raid. The attempt had been to uh, conquer the city, but it surrendered without a fight and handed over a substantial bribe to be left intact. At the same time as moving onto Tabriz, uh, the Mongol commander supplemented their forces with irregular Turkmen, Kurdish, and other mercenaries. And by early 2020, uh, 2021, by early 1221, we're in a position to push into Georgia. And it's probably a good point to talk about the Georgian list. Is that you again, Nick? Um, Georgian list? Should we talk about the Mongol list first? Sorry, the Mongol list. Yes. Yes, so yes, uh, I'm going to pick up the thread on that one. So the Mongol conquest list is the one we're referring to, which is in the Genghis uh, uh, army lists. Um, so this is, um, as you might expect, um, a fairly good quality army. Um, starts off professional generals, um, although you can have an instinctive nomadic vassal. Um, who can command uh, nomadic cavalry. Um, 
you uh, on the plains terrain wise with a mobile camp. Uh, so, but given that you could have an entirely mounted army, uh, you've also got the option of going that way and having a no camp option as well. Um, at the, the best troops, if you want them, are the Khan's Guard. I suppose technically for the raid, because the Khan wasn't present, uh, they probably shouldn't be in the army. Uh, they would be um, uh, drilled loose, exceptional protected, skilled bow, short spear, melee expert. 280 points of base and dispensable makes them 288. Um, so yes, you're not, uh, you can have naught to six of those. Um, but if you choose all six, you're not going to have too much left for other things. You can even upgrade those guards for, uh, in the dates that we're talking about from 1218. So they become drill close, exceptional, armored horse protected, experienced bow, short spear, shoot and charge melee expert. Um, uh, so that, that actually reduces their points cost um, to 266. Um, the main thing you lose in doing that is, although you're gaining horse armor, you're losing the uh, ability to evade. Though if you're exceptional short spear and melee expert, why are you going to bother evading in the first place? Not to mention the skilled shooting charge. <laughs> uh, well, if you are at horse, you, you drop to experience bow. Oh, do you? Skilled bow at that point on the principle that you wouldn't uh, need to be that good at, at uh, shooting because you're probably going to flatten anybody you approach. Um, the bulk of the army, however, um, is the Tumen Cavalry. They come in two flavours. You have Armoured Tumen Cavalry who are Drilled Loose, Superior Protected Skill Bow, Short Spear with Optional Melee Expert, 0 to 18 of those. And then the Ordinary Tumen Cavalry who are Drilled Flexible, Superior Unprotected Skill Bow, Short Spear with Optional Melee Expert. Um, a positive bargain at 171 points. Um, <laughs> You then can add, um, if that wasn't enough, you can add your nomadic cavalry who are flexible, form flexible, average, unprotected, experienced bow, although up to half of those, and you can have up to 36, can be upgraded to skilled bow. Along with that, you can also have some skirmishing cavalry, average, unprotected, skilled bow. Um, the Mongol cavalry are all dismountable. Should you wish to do so. Um, if cavalry isn't your thing, uh, you can have uh, uh, up to three bolt shooters, uh, average unprotected experience light artillery. Not quite sure how they fit in with the army, to be honest, but there you go. And then if you want to be really brutal, you can have uh, potentially two tugs of unarmed driven civilians who are tribal loose, poor, unprotected, expendables, combat shy, and who have a special rule, which means that if they break, nobody cares. Um, Apart from their families. Well, their families might, but nobody in the army. <laughs> who have probably just been killed alongside them, might yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, one of the more brutal habits of the uh, Mongol army. Um, to take the local population and drive them in front of their own army to act as a sort of human shield. Um, that's something we do not condone in this podcast, it's fair to say. 
Um, uh, along with that, uh, we could have um, a Kitan contingent, um, which are, uh, consists of Kitan nobles who are drilled loose superior protected experience, both short spear with optional melee expert, four to six of those, and a Kitan cavalry who are drilled loose average protected experience, both short spear with optional melee expert. Um, they have to uh, be in their own um, contingent. Um, uh, I'll skip the other contingents. They're not valid um, unless you're in China or they're not relevant to the raid. Um, I think strictly, I don't think any of the other allies took part in the raid either. Uh, you can have Yurchin Jin, um, Korean definitely didn't there too late anyway, and the Uyghur or Uyghur allies. Um, I think they may have taken part in the, some of the attacks against the uh, Khwarezmians. Um, that's an Uyghur successor states or ally option. So it's um, a list with quite a lot of flexible variations, um, not unnaturally given the nature of the Mongol campaigns. Um, uh, so it's, um, yeah, uh, plenty of options for skilled bow, plenty of options for superior troops as well. Uh, but obviously, if you take all of those and throw in the melee experts, then you're not going to come up with a very big army. The op opening stage of the campaign is the, the Mongols and their auxiliars enter Georgia following the path of the Kurai River. Uh, Subadai and Zhev scattered their auxiliar forces into raiding groups across the countryside, as, presumably as a screen for the, the, the main Mongol force, but equally to, to goad the Georgians into a response. Um, so just quickly, the Georgians. The, the Georgian state was a Christian kingdom that in the first decade of the 13th century under Queen Tamar, uh, or King of Kings as she was more properly titled, uh, had, had dominated large parts of present-day Azerbaijan, Armenia, Eastern Turkey, and their military might was based on a feudal mix of mounted nobles and retainers supported by a substantial foot levy. Unfortunately, Tamar's son, George IV, wasn't quite the chip off the old block. And while he, it's credited that he was personally very brave, he really wasn't the calibre of a leader needed to be facing the Mongols, uh, being somewhat... Um, Enjoying a flamboyant lifestyle is one of the quotes that often turns up. And uh, shall we have a quick discussion on the Georgian list? Yes, I, I think I think I did get lumped with this one as well. Um, the grounds one of us had to do two armies. Okay, the the Georgian army is in the Crusades book, not Genghis like the other ones. Um, and as Matt said, it it had actually peaked a little too soon for the Mongol conquest coming in. Um, with with a king who wasn't probably really up to up to scratch. Anyway, to to, to go into the army list, um, unlike the armies we've just been look, talking about, the Khwarezmians and the Mongols, the Georgian are instinctive generals um, rather than professional. Um, the terrain types are standard and mountains. Obviously, the area the Georgians come from are quite mountainous. As Matt just introduced there, the 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 strength of their army are uh, their noble cavalry, um, who are, are called as Nori, or some proper pronunciation, because I really have no idea of how to pronounce anything Georgian. 
So that's a bit of a phonetic one. Um, we're not quite sure how these were armed. I mean, previously they had had a reputation of being uh, charging lancers, um, but it's possible that under the influence of of the Seljuks, um, since you know Georgia was in existence when the Seljuks burst onto the scene in the Middle East, it's possible that they started to um, adopt more Seljuk-like tactics. However, the army list provides the option for both. Um, the nobles, um, the, we start with it, so you get two flavours and they can be a mix of any of them. The more charging variety is made up of half of the Asnuri and half retainers. Ah, and the, the Asnuri are formed loose, superior protected charging lancer, optional melee expert. And the retainers are formed loose, average, unprotected, experienced bow, shoot and charge and melee expert. Um, there was still quite a tradition of archery in the area, even before the Seljuks arrived. So you've got some charging lancers who can be shot in a bit by the retainers if they're in the second rank. Obviously, if they're only one rank, even though they're experienced, they will go down at colour. But they've got the shoot and charge there. So if they're fighting the step types, they've got the chance of causing slows to catch them, which is also useful. And being melee expert, they can still stand up to fight a bit. The more shooty option replaces the charging lancers with experienced bow short spear. And the retainers just become experienced bow. They, they lose the shoot and charge and they lose the optional melee expert as well. Um, the, these are 50-50 split um, units and you can have three to nine of the Asnuri and the retainers must be in equal amounts. So you can have basically up to 18 bases of these nobles in whichever configuration you like. So you could have three sixes, for example. Um, unfortunately for, 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 the, for the list in the period we're looking for, earlier on they could have Frankish mercenaries who are basically charging knights. Um, however, with the fall of the county of Edessa in 1144, they seem to have lost the uh, access to these knights. So at the time the Mongols arrive, they've, they've, they're losing their hard-hitting Frankish mercenaries. Um, they can have some, a few a unit of horse archers form flexible experienced bow. Um, they can have the same, who are Turkmen, and then they can have a third unit, Turkmen skilled mercenaries, who are, unsurprisingly, skilled archers. However, as again as Matt alluded to, big chunk of spearmen available to the army, tribal clothes, average protected, short spear with optional integral shooters, also optionally combat shy if you want to go down that route. Um, not sure why you would want to in any large scale, but you never know. That's just my view. Um, they can also have a cup, 0 to 16 archers, um, tribal loose, average, protected, which is quite useful, experienced bow, optional combat shy, and they can have some, some skirmishers, 0 to 18 javelin men, and then 12 to 24 skirmishing bowmen. So you've got compulsory skirmishing bowmen there. Um, now, the Georgians benefited from being allied to Cumans on a fairly consistent basis. Um, so at this period, you can have a Cumans <clears throat> who you can have 0 to 6 who are formed loose, superior protected, experienced bow short spear. And then 0 to 24 form flexible, average unprotected, experienced bow. And half of those, up to half of those can be skilled. Um, one thing is, whilst they're part of the normal army, the Cumans must be in separate commands, although they can be 
sub-generals, they're not allied generals. So they are, that's, that's the Georgians as they, as, as depicted in the megaliths, as they stood under their possibly playboy king, um, thinking back to the glory days of the, 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 the king of king, the queen Tamar, as, as um, the onrushing Mongol horde of the great raid that Richard's just described are coming towards them. And I must admit, on basic um, army lists, I know who's my, which side my money's on. <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't the Georgians. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't it it buy ramblings about that. I've got, I'm sure Matt will now continue with the meat and drink of the Great Raid. Thank you. Right. Um, so, Subadai and Zev, um, once the assembled Georgian field army started responding to their basically hack and slash raid through the countryside, seemed to have pulled all their auxiliary forces back as uh, as a separate force to 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 the main mongol troops um and use those to engage the georgians first obviously you know you you, you spend your mercenaries before you spend your good troops um, and sure enough the georgians battered aside these auxiliary forces um and but were almost immediately confronted by the intact mongol troops um who rather than immediately engaging the Georgians, retreated in good order, as Mongols do, peppering the advanced Georgians, Georgians with, um, with arrows and getting them into some disorder. The, the, the description of the battle is um, what seems to have happened is the Georgians apparently broke on contact when the Mongols were able to rehorse on fresh mounts and launched directed charges on what was now essentially a very spread out force. And at that point, the Mongols withdrew. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, so, yeah, so having defeated the Georgian main army, the, the Mongols then withdrew, returning back to Tabriz. Uh, there's a couple of theories on what happened here. Either the uh, their rear zones had um, rebelled. Well, we know some did. Once they returned to Tabriz, uh, they, they clearly resupplied, restocked. Uh, but they also extorted Tabriz for another large cash uh, sum. And but by the end of 1221 the raid was back on um but had been delayed by almost nine months um at this point they return to georgia and again they face a georgian army in the field and it was brought to ground on according to the sources super super had marked earlier on in the year as a suitable place for what he had in had in mind and basically what happened was the georgians advanced in what is described as a disciplined mass. Up until the point, they got ambushed by a detached force led by Zev, who hit them in the rear with about 5,000 heavy cavalry, uh, and at which point the main force under Subadai turned around and hit them on what was their new rear, effectively. Uh, inevitable route, the, the Georgian army is destroyed as a field force, um, and but it also set the scene for the loss of their capital, Tbilisi, in 1226 by Jalaladin, who took the opportunity, uh, there were no significant Georgian forces left, to grab the capital as a new power base to face the Mongols. So, so the army's destroyed. The king is severely wounded, apparently, um, at, according to the sources, because he dies a couple of years later. But the odd thing is, as far as the Georgians were concerned, they were reeling from this blow and the Mongols just disappeared. They just went. Um, sorry, I'm just going to digress slightly. It's worth noting that this confrontation with the main Georgian army is somewhat murky because 
accounts range from there being a single battle in late 1221 or two battles, which is what I've described here, the, the, the early and the late, undecided which one it, it is. Um, simply because there are a lot of similarities between the two and none of the sources give you any kind of consistent feel for what happened. Uh, my personal opinion is I think there were two battles because um, the the effect on Georgia was so significant that it just could not recover. And although the, the, the later battle happened almost in winter, it kind of implies that it was a lot smaller force than the first one. But anyway, so whichever way it works, having crushed Georgia, the Mongols disappear into the night effectively. And where they've headed is they've headed north up towards the Caspian Sea, northeast. Um, and they reach the fortified city of Durbant, which is between the Caucasus Mountains and the Caspian Sea, on a very narrow, less than a kilometer from the foothills to, to the sea itself. And it is very heavily fortified. It, it was one of the original um, outposts of the, um, the Sassanid Empire at one point, and it had huge fortifications. The implication is that Subadai's forces just did not have enough siege equipment all the time to batter their way through these walls. There are, again, somewhat murky sources. Uh, the best we can say is the Mongols got themselves into a really rather nasty mountain trek using local guides or forced local guides from uh, Durban. They basically said, you know, give us guides to get us away from your city and, you know, we'll go away. Uh, the Chinese sources particularly say that it was snow-covered passes. They took casualties, lost their siege train. There's an argument that they didn't have a siege train, which is one of the reasons they didn't try to take the city. Arrive on the other side of the mountains, straight into the face of a Kipchak and Alan army that was waiting for them at the other side of the pass. Again, the sources imply that the, the Durbant governor basically sent messages by a much easier route to say, by the way, there's a Mongol army coming. You might want to do something about it because we can't. The primary source for this basically says that the Mongols immediately had tried to break out, but were forced back into the foothills um, after a particularly bloody battle. It was resolved in typical Mongol fashion. They, 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 they went to the Kipchaks and said, here's a massive amount of gold. Why don't you join us or go away? And sure enough, we're not quite sure which one they chose, but either way, the Alans were isolated and sufficiently isolated that the remaining Mongol forces were able to overwhelm them relatively easily in a, in a pitch battle. Rather than concentrating on dealing with the, the remaining Alan territory, the, um, the Mongols split up and actually hunted down the Kipchak clans that they bribed and took back all their money, basically. Slaves, gold, horses, the works. What this caused was a lot of refugees started fleeing north and to the west to their um, fellow Cuman tribe allies and retreated to them and into the Rus principalities. At this point, it all goes a bit to the left, and I mean that quite literally. The entire Mongol force took a massive detour into the Crimean Peninsula and um, sacked the settlement of Soldai. Why? nobody's quite sure. Now, there are various um, theories that have been put forward. The one that seems to have quite a lot of popular traction is that Subadai actually did some negotiations with Venetian traders 
for intelligence on the surrounding area. And part of that deal was, could you go and destroy the city? Because allegedly it was a Georgian, uh, sorry, not a Georgian, a Genoese um, colony. Yeah, that, that, that's a bit tenuous for various reasons. The, 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 there is a reason why it exists, because later on, the Doge of Venice and the Mongol Empire did have a series of semi-secret treaties because the Mongols felt the Venetians were far less, um, far more biddable, shall we say, than the Genoese traders. Anyway, so uh, so there's little direct cited evidence for Venetian and Mongol cooperation at this time during the raid, particularly as it's much more likely that uh, this settlement, um, Soldai, was actually under the control of the Byzantine rump state of Trebizond, or possibly even the Seljuk Turks, who were, um, the Seljuks of Rum, sorry, who were, uh, also having a slight war with Trebizond at the time. So whatever the reason, they sacked... And can I give you my theory? Yes, yes, please do. My theory is the Mongols basically doing the usual Mongol thing, tried to extort some money out of the city, the city review refused, and the Mongols attacked and burnt it. <laughs> the simplest solutions are usually the right ones, in my opinion. There's no no primary source to support that, but it just seems to me you can invent elaborate theories and actually overlook the blatantly obvious personal. No, no, no that, that, that totally fits. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great fan of the Venetian theory. And as I say, the, 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 the main oddity is that, you know, to get to it, you actually have to go all the way through the, the Crimean Peninsula, all the way up and all the way down. So it was quite an uh, quite a detour from what their original um the, the plan was but i do like that yes basically went for the money which is uh, fair enough um so having sacked soldai the, the mongol forces split uh Subodai took a raiding force along the coast of the sea of azov uh, basically um wasting well uh, creating a wasteland behind them destroying towns sacking sacking them burning them you know looting as he went basically securing a rear area, as far as everybody could tell, for future Mongol advance. Um, Zev took a force towards the Don, uh, where he started harassing the Kipchak clans that had been moving west after their, their set to down by the uh, Caspian Sea. Um, at some point during that, um, that, that, that run by Zev, he, um, take, take your pick, co-opted, hired, or otherwise persuaded the chief of the, uh, the Brodnik tribe to add 5,000 mounted horse, uh, mounted riders, sorry, uh, to, to, to the Mongol forces. Um, and uh, whilst, whilst moving back towards Subodai, they, they received news that um, the, the Rus principalities were forming an anti-Mongol alliance. Uh, this seems to have come about how accurate the sources is, is there's um, one of the fle fleeing uh, Cuman uh, uh, Kipchak chieftains, uh, somebody who's recording the sources is called uh, Kotan, um, had appealed to his father-in-law, the, the, the Rus prince uh, Misselof of Galicia for assistance against the Mongols. Now, the, 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 the Rus Kipchak Cuman uh, um, relations shall we say has pretty much been hostile for about 200 years to this point they fought over the same lands cumin raids were pretty consistent but what is also consistent is russ 
had uh, a, how do I how, how do I put this politely? They had a passion for human women, so would often marry into the uh, the chieftain families because of a reputation for great beauty and strength of character, and, and so on. So this is what this is why Kotan ends up being allied to to the Prince of Galicia. Um, so there is a fairly strong um, feeling among many of the, the Rus princes that they should just leave the um, Kipchaks to their fate. Um, after all, they've, you know, they've been raiding them for years. So this this goes on for a while, apparently. Uh, but a princely council was called at uh, Kiev, uh, where an accord was apparently struck with some 18 Rus princes forming this alliance to head off this new nomad incursion. The precise reasons why they decide they're going to do it is, is not made clear. I'm, I'm going to guess they probably probably went with the better the devil you know than somebody who's just beaten them up. You know. So anyway. Um, the leading players in this alliance were three princes. Rather annoyingly, they're all called Mstislav. <laughs> Every single one of them. And they're the princes of Galicia, Kiev, and uh, Chernigov. Which is fine, except what you find in the Rus Chronicles, they only refer to Mstislav. Not Mstislav of Kiev, or Chernigov, or Galicia. So you actually have no idea which one they're talking about, unless there's a fairly strong context given. So anyway, so so the three Mr. Slavs, I'm assuming they formed a band at some point with a name like that. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, they're the leading players and they provide substantial uh, forces. Now, the, the, now Galicia is the, the furthest away. Um, and there is actually a note in the Chronicles that they actually sent their cavalry across land to, to, to the muster point and sent their infantry by uh, ship. Down, down the Crimea and up the the, the Dnieper. The Chronicles state there was over a thousand ships, which I'm kind of figuring that you don't need a pretty damn big river to get a thousand ships up it, but uh, in one go from one principality. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing here. Um, so, by April 1223, the Rus forces are starting to converge, uh, assembling to the south of their territories. Actually, they're actually assembling more in the the Cuman zone than uh, in the Kipchak zone than they are their own. And at that point, it's probably a good good time for me to talk about the Rus list. So the early Russian lists. So I'm going to just yeah, dive that. off into. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great, Matt. I think you, you mentioned they've got the, the, the cavalry, obviously cavalry infantry. <laughs> well, yes, yes. Have that. So, uh, yeah, tell us a bit more about um, how, Me how Meg has represented these anyway. So, yes, uh, so, so to, to round out the, the, the protagonists in, in the Great Raid. Yeah, absolutely right. So. Um, for those that have listened to the previous podcast, they would have heard me waxing lyrical about the early Russians as I'd, I'd use them in a, in a tournament, but for the purposes of the great raid. So early Russian, uh, they're instinctive generals. They can have three subordinate generals and two internal allies. Uh, they're terrain is standard and forest. They're unfortified or fortified, poor or average camp, the, the, the usual spread. Now, uh, the backbone of their forces are the noble cavalry and retainers, which are formed, loose, superior, protected, short spear, optional melee expert. And you can have up to 18 of those. They are supported by uh, another block of 18 of average cavalry, otherwise identical, form, loose, average, protected, short spear, melee expert. Um, they can have mercenary Germans. Uh, at this date, they would be formed, loose, fully armored, average, charging lancer, dev charger with an optional dismount, up to six of those. 
um, Polish cavalry, which um, are formed through superior protected short spear melee experts, basically the same as the nobles. Um, probably not relevant to the, the great raid. I suspect they're probably a later uh, arrival, probably when the Mongols actually arrived to con uh, conquest in the area. Um, but right, so uh, the next large bulk of forces for them are mercenary Turks and uh, pension eggs, which are formed, flexible, average, unprotected, experienced bow, up to 24 of those, and up to half of those can be upgraded to skilled bow. Uh, Lithuanian cavalry, uh, probably the same reason the Polish cavalry in the list, they are formed, flexible, average, unprotected, unskilled javelin, short spear, melee expert, shoot and charge, dismantable, and you have six of those. Then you get the infantry. Uh, there's two types. There's the, the, the polk spearmen, which are formed close, average protected, short spear, shield wall, integrated shooters, which is optional. Eight to 48 of those. And then there's the smerdy spearmen, who are tribal close, poor, unprotected, short spear, shield wall, optional, integral shooters, up to 40 of those. Uh, basically, uh, you're more experienced, levy, and the dregs is the way I'm going to go with that. Um, you can have some skirmishing Hungarian light horse, average unprotected experience bow, combat shy, up to six of those, and up to 18 skirmishing foot archers, which are infantry skirmishers, average unprotected experience bow, combat shy. Uh, an assortment of allies, the only one that is relevant is the Kipchak ally, um, which is... Um, it's gonna a mix of nobles and, and light horse, but that's an external ally. Um, if I was to do this list for the great raid, I would be using an instinctive general and one sub-general and two allied generals. It would hamper the list something horrible, but that would be the best representation for the forces that are about to be arrayed. Um, that's it, that's basically the list. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come to a sample list later. Indeed, right, so. Okay, afraid it's still more of your talking, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. No, no, that's, that's something fine. I was just, just trying to locate where I'd lost myself. As it, so. Do appreciate how much you're putting into this, um, Matt. I think because it's um, it is quite complicated. There's a lot of lot of history here. So anyway, I'll let you get on with it. No, no, I, I, I always believe enthusiasm is the way forward, even if intelligence isn't. So, anyway, <laughs> my enthusiasm can do right. So, um, so in keeping with. Um, usual Mongol uh, diplomacy uh, to separate and conquer, uh, Subadai sent envoys to the Russian princes and basically said, um, our grievances are with the uh, Kipchaks and uh, are not with you. Um, the princes, in keeping with most Mongol enemies, immediately killed the envoys and continued with their muster. Um, anyway, so the muster point was an island near um, Kortiza, which was located in the Lower Dnieper. Um, there's no consistent numbers given for the size of the muster. Now, there's there's a Russian historian that's postulated it was as low as 8,000. Um, but the normal figure seems to be around 80,000, which strikes me as extreme in number. Uh, a mixture of cavalry and foot is the, is the general impression given. Um, but it also contained the entire Kipchak nation. And that, that being those that have fled from the earlier fights, all under um, Kotam. So 
the Mongols' response to the death of their envoys is to send another envoy, basically informing the Russian princes that they accept the death of their previous envoys as an act of war. Uh, the Russian princes this time let the new envoy leave. They obviously, you know, twigged that it was probably not the best idea to kill another one. Um, so, at or near the muster point on the Dnieper, a force of some 1,000 Mongols is attacked by Mrs. Love of Galatia's Rus and the Kipchaks. This force is annihilated and prompts a general advance of the Rus army. Uh, this 1,000-man force of Mongols is variously described as a rearguard, a supply column, as the Rus chroniclers say large numbers of cattle were captured, large numbers of cattle were captured, or it may even have just been a scouting force. One historian has gone so far as to suggest that this particular element of the story actually masks the death of uh, Ziev as, as he was allegedly its leader. Uh, it's an interesting twist on the tale. The upcoming battle between the Mongols, the Rus, and their Kipchak allies is usually known as the Battle of Kalka River. But well, it is known as the Battle of Calcutta. There's no, no, no denying that's what it's known as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the one fact that actually comes out of this. That's the, that's what everybody calls it. We, you know? we, we, we have an actual historical fact that we can be reasonably certain about. Yeah, yeah yes. Unfortunately, it, the, the, the fact is that's what they've called it. There is some dis debate whether that was actually the river. <laughs> which, 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 you know, sends you off on a different tangent. But anyway, so yes, so the Calca River. There are very few few sources for this, um, and they contradict each other, which is about normal for 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 this particular uh, area and, and period. So, what what can be gleaned? The actual battle is fought over the River Kalka, or one of its subsidiary uh, subsidiary um, tributaries. Um, Subadai and the majority of the Mongols are on the eastern side of this river with an advance guard on the western bank. The battle opens with the Rus vanguard clashing with the Mongol advance guard on the western side of the river. And the Mongols are either driven back over the river or withdraw over the river. Now, it, now it's, it's worth noting at this point that we, we're using the word river, yet throughout all the accounts, both sides seem to be able to cross this river with relative impunity. It doesn't seem to have impeded them particularly uh, noticeably it may be you know a more extreme or or you know anyway so the elements of the russian of the rus forces and the uh, kipchaks cross following the mongol advance guard now some elements stop to erect a camp that's that's quite clear from the available sources that a camp is being built the kipchak go forward presumably scouting to establish where the mongol forces are the other rust princes start crossing the river but are strung out on the approach to the river it appears at this juncture that Subaday launches an immediate strong cavalry attack on the kipchak ford units pushing them or routing them back into the rust near the river now the the, the, the persian scholar iban al afir and the Rus sources, primarily the Chronicle of Novgorod, make it quite clear, sorry, Novgorod, make it quite clear that the Rus forces already across the river, despite being disordered and ill-prepared, were able to counterattack the Mongols and to hold them long enough for other Rus troops to cross and reinforce the line. In, in fact, the Chronicler almost gives the impression that the Rus troops were not in their armour 
they were setting camp. They 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 were sufficiently disordered that you know they went into the line totally ill prepared. And at that point, so they they'd stopped the Mongols, but additional Mongol units then swung the balance, presumably a a, a reserve. Um, and at this juncture, what, what sources there are agree a general rout ensues with the Mongols conducting a pursuit back as far as the Dnieper River. Um, of note is that the, the, the Kievan contingent is said to either formed a wagon lager on the Kalka and eventually been overwhelmed and massacred, or they managed an ordered retreat back to the Dnieper where they formed a defensive wagon lager and were then overwhelmed. The aftermath of the battle is Zhev, who I'm pretty sure is still alive at this point, and, and, and Subodai uh, sack a series of towns along the Dnieper and uh, then head back into the Eastern Plains to rest and resupply. There, there, there seems to be an implication that they also spend their time gathering intelligence on the area because um, they don't take the most direct eastward route to link up with uh, Zhuzhai and his forces. And instead, they end up heading northeast into the territories of the Volgar Bulgars. Try and say that fast. Again, going with Richard's theory, it said they were a wealthy and prosperous land. So there's probably money involved here somewhere. Or loot. Follow the money. Follow the money, exactly. Um, and, and to paraphrase the secret histories of the Mongols, Subadai was discomforted by these people. Ooh. Yes, and that's about as far as all the sources go. But it seems that the pair of them suffered some kind of reverse. The supposition is the Mongol vanguard was ambushed and severely damaged. And it's possible that at this point, Zhev was wounded or killed rather than earlier against, against the Rus. As a consequence or, or, or part of a concerted action, um, Jujai's forces have to join with Subadai's to complete what was officially the, the, the actual mission, which was to subdue the Kipchak tribes in the area. Um, so a supporting column from Jujai joins with Subadai and they successfully crush, um, they're described as rebels. So the, 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 the assumption is they, um, they had made some sort of agreement with the Mongols and then decided that, you know, once they got their nose bloodied by the Volgars thought, actually, now was the time to have a go at it. Uh, they got it wrong. They were destroyed, apparently, quite brutally. And then a series of free Kipchak settlements on the Volga were also destroyed. And at that point, the Mongol troops um, consolidated and returned to the main Mongol army, where um, Subadai and uh, Jujai are immensely fated by Genghis for, for, for the campaign. Um, Jujai is one of his sons that throughout the histories, you, you, he, he and his father had a bit of a tempestuous relationship. So, so at this point, um, the Mongols have been away from Genghis for three years? Yep, three years. They've covered... I, I, I just find this is, a, this is an astonishing thing that I, I can't think of any other armies of the period, or most of the ancient medieval period that we, we cover in Meg, where somebody would commit tens of thousands of troops to go off on this huge independent long distance, almost without boundaries raid, and say, see you in three years. Yes, yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, the the, the total in, in kilometres is something like six and a half thousand. And given that the original aim was 
I say just to loop around the Caspian Sea and fall on the Kipchaks on the on on, on the other side. They actually went far further north, and um, you know went 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 on a particularly spectacular jolly. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I suppose the closest you get classically wise would possibly be Hannibal and his Italy campaigns, where he you know marched marched all the way through Spain and up the top, but it doesn't even come close to this one. So it's it's, it's a stunning achievement. Um, the numbers that are apparent in their return is is a bit um, nebulous, shall we say? But the the, the the conventional wisdom is they lost something like sixty percent of their troops, right? Yeah. Um, they also lost two thirds of the senior command. Apparently, two out of three of the generals that were under Subadai died. So I'm guessing it was probably the the Tuman commanders. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they they took a batter in doing it, but. But they were, but were significantly fated. I mean, yeah. Genghis you know, gave them one hell of a party when they got back. But still, it's just a, a completely different way of waging war, isn't it? Than a, you know, pretty much everybody else is still in relatively seasonal campaigns over much shorter distances. Yes, because I mean, the, the, the Georgian, the, the, the late Georgian battle was fought in the middle of winter, um, and. Again, the one when they fought the Kipchaks and the um, the, the Alans around the um, Caspian Sea. Again, that was that was over over January period. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's quite it's astonishing. And anyway, Matt, that that's been that's been brilliant. That's uh, I've, I've I've I was sort of aware of this raid, but the the sort of details and and how far they went, like six and a half thousand kilometres, is, is new. But shall we move on to army lists? We've uh, we've teased the the listener with the the details from the PDFs. So perhaps we should um, now put our, our our armies for each of them before before the jury to see what people say. Would that seem okay with everybody? Sounds yeah. good to me. Okay. Well, I'll. In the same order we did it through your history match, shall I start off with the Quaresmians? Um, okay, so I've gone for a command structure of three competent professional generals and a competent instinctive ally for Turkmen. Remember, there's a Turkmen contingent allowed. Um, so I've got 12 cards there. This gives me a PBS of eight and a scouting of six, which is very nice. The, uh, the whole army turns out to be mounted. Um, but I haven't gone for the option of no camp. I've got a poor, unfortified camp. Um, I've gone for three units of six bases of the Lancers, the formed loose, superior protected, experienced bow, charging Lancer, shoot and charge. That's my big punch for this army. Um, though people who keep track of my armies, somebody might out there, might, might have twigged that I, I do quite like the idea of three units that have decently fighting capable in my shooty cavalry armies. So there they are. Um, I've just gone for the minimum of eight bases of the Cankley horse archers, four flexible, average, unprotected experience bow in two fours. They're just going to nip around and snipe and maybe try and get on flanks. Um, I've then gone for a six of the same as well, just to give the other two something to work around. So you've got one unit that can stand up a bit more, is a bit less fragile and could be the one um, advanced to take some shooting and certainly in the context of, of the great raid um, where there is a Mongol army out there which is just full of skilled shooters something that can last a reasonable amount of time has got to be good 
Also put in a unit, the Persian Cavalry, formed loose, average protected, experienced bow. Yeah, they're there really because they're another shooting, but they're protected, so it just, just helps. Two units of Turkmen, again, six bases, one experienced bow, one skilled bow. So we worked a little bit of skilled in. It's not an army that gets a lot of skilled. And then two units of six bases of Kankali skirmishers, cavalry, skirmisher, average, unprotected, experienced bow, Cantabrian combat shy. Um, just gives a, another four files, hopefully, of people who can shoot as if skilled. So possibility of seven files of skilled shooters in there. Not the big massive amount that some of my other shooter cavalry armies have, but, you know, you can could work well. And then you, you're hoping to, obviously, um, prepare the way to insert those three units of lancers um, with into the enemy. And again, talking the context of this one, if you are, say, fighting the Mongols, you hope the shoot and charge will affect them. And then if you those lancers can get in, they should hopefully be able to rip a decent size hole in the opponent. Um, so that's it. You know, I'm not, not going to claim this is a, a big and clever army, but those those lancers are a bit different, as I said earlier, um, and I think can give can give um, other shooty cavalry armies a bit of hard time. And against other armies, the fact they are experienced bow and don't have to charge, despite the charging lancer, um, does give you options. Um, sorry, in case I forget, didn't mention it, the two Turkmen units are a an allied contingent under the competent instinctive general. Um, competent, yeah, I think this army could stand that being hesitant if you just drew black and whites at the beginning. Make life difficult, but I think it's, I don't think it's terminal if you do. So that's my offering. Don't know what people think of that one. Other than oh, it's another it's another cavalry army from Nick. <laughs> I was I was going to say it's a very Nick cavalry army. Um, would be my reaction. Uh, I yeah, I, I think I wouldn't particularly fancy if if it was a themed competition around the Great Raid. I think it should do reasonably well. Would be my reaction. Mine would be the same, and given given how much difficulty that army historically gave the Mongols, I, I yeah, I'd expect it to do well as well. Yeah, I mean, those lancers because they're superior. Obviously, the Mongols have lots of skilled shooters, but they're not get, they're not going to be shooting at the Mongreens. And then the shoot and charge can hopefully cause slows, so you're forcing the the Mongols to hopefully uh, run away more more than they want to. And if you do catch them, it's going to be quite painful for the Mongols, hopefully. Yeah, I, I did find doing this one, the army, I felt it sort of wrote itself in a way. I'm not sh sure I can see much of a an alternative to this sort of approach in the list. But on the other hand, I do think it's quite, quite competent. Well, on that vote of confidence, <laughs> Richard was next in line with the aforementioned Mongols. Mongols, yes. So I... I, I have picked an army which probably wouldn't do very well against yours. Um, so my Mongol conquest army um, was three competent professional uh, generals and then a talented, instinctive nomadic vassal ally. Um, I then I basically went for units of four, which would um need very careful playing but this gave allow me to go for 11 tugs and two skirmishing sugs of six um 
the it's only got one uh, protected unit. That's that's of armoured to cavalry, protected skilled bow, short spear, um, dismountable because the points gave the option to do so. Um, it, along with that, it has uh, one, two, three, four, five, six units of two-man cavalry, drilled flexible, downgraded to average, unprotected, but skilled bow, short spear. Uh, and one of them gets dismountable again just because the points allowed for it. Um, the nomadic cavalry component is, is essentially four units of form flexible average unprotected cavalry, two experienced bow and two skilled bow. And as I mentioned, two units of skirmishers. Um, so uh, with a poor mobile camp, uh, it comes out at 9998 points. Uh, because of the dismounting, dismounting. Actually, I gave the skirmishing cavalry dismountable as well. Um, it, the dismountable does potentially give a bit of option if there's some terrain, although um, this is probably not an army that's going to be um, using, take, taking advantage of that, I guess. Um, eight PBS, seven scouting. Um, so you're probably not um, going to be short of scouting cards. Um, remembering you can only ever take the best five of your scouting cards. That's a rule people sometimes forget. Um, uh, yeah, it would. It's slippery, but it, because you've got all those cavalry being unprotected and in fours, um, it's. It's great against opponents that can't shoot back. It's going to be need very careful handling against opponents who can. So it might struggle in a great raid competition, to be honest. But there you go. That was my offering. I think it's worth noting that those two skirmishing cavalry are also skilled bow. Yes. Which which is which is nice. Which is nice. Um, expensive, but nice. I mean, you you have to w worry a bit less about them being shot at, unless it, unless the opponent get very close to them. So you know, I think give, gives you some yeah, a little a little tweak there that you can work with. It's yeah, it's one of those. I've, I've, I've had whenever I've looked at the Mongols, I end up with something that is, is somewhat. It's going to be somewhat similar to this. You end up with a lot of fours of the unprotecteds because you just. They're expensive, you know. They're, they're not cheap troops because they're drilled, skilled bow, short spear. You know, it adds up. It's it's an army for the brave and the competent. Yeah, I, I think there are probably a few more interesting options, but they weren't relevant to the great raid really. Um, so that that's my great raid army anyway. Certainly not one that wants to be fighting in hand to hand until the enemy is really in its really short yeah. pieces. Any coincidence to my Mitanni army? Is <laughs> yeah. I don't it wasn't. Who who was going to mention? This? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, you, whatever you say about yeah, the unprotected, you know, all it with that many skilled bow, it will always worry people. Because you just know we just need that that round where you just get a great set of shooting dice and suddenly the opponent's going, 
Where's my front rank gone? Yeah, there was a unit here a minute ago. Yeah. yeah, and and with the eleven tugs and two sugs, um, opposing armies are going to struggle with flanks and that sort of thing. You you have to be patient, avoid contact wherever possible, work around those flanks, and and once you do get the hole, it's amazing how much fun you can have. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, th I think in a very Mongol way, you then exploit it mercilessly, don't you? <laughs> uh, that's that's the trick, yes. Yeah, so, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, oh, I suppose in, in the order, it was back to me, wasn't it, with Georgian? Okay, th th this one, I, I, I'm going to defy you to say this is a Nick-type army. So it's a you know, Georgian army, again, of the period of the Great Raid. Um, Unlike the previous two, this has got instinctive generals. I've gone for a legendary instinctive CNC and three competent instinctive sub-generals. Um, and I hardly ever use legendary generals, but this appealed to me on this one. Although Matt might want to suggest that the playboy king of Georgia possibly shouldn't be allowed to be legendary. Depends on what he's legendary for. Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 I like that answer. I like that answer a lot. Well, hold on to that. He, 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 was, he, he, was, he was riding at the front, drinking away, shouting, remember my mother or something. I don't... Yeah, something along those lines, yeah. It's yeah, an image he, to play with. It, it, yes, actually, we probably better not go down that one. Too. <laughs> yeah. A legendary commander can still draw five black cards. <laughs> <laughs> Now there's a, there's an encouraging thought. Never <laughs> there was one. Anyway, this gives a PBS of seven and a scouting of four um, because of the troops I've got in the, in the army. But a lot of that comes from the legendary general. There's a poor, flexible camp. Um, it was interesting when when I, I knocked this up and I thought, oh, flexible camp. I think that's one that tends to get overlooked a bit. It isn't that expensive, and if you're defending, you get a protect a fortified camp. So, you know, I, think I like flexible camps. Yeah, yeah it's one I'm, I'm, I'm squirrel away for, for armies that might be able to have it, to keep an eye open for that. Anyway, I've gone for three units of the Asnure and Retainers. One of them I've gone with the Charging Lancer melee expert option I discussed earlier. The other two are the Experienced Bow Short Spear versions. Um, so more like step cavalry. Um, thinking of that one is, 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 is partly thinking about the way I play, I, 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 but also thinking, well, the legendary general can lead those char that charging lancer unit at some point in the game to hopefully knock a decisive hole somewhere. So there's another reason for the legendary general. You know, the, 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 although they've got charging lancers in that unit, only half the unit is charging lancers and superior. So it's got to make a hole fairly quickly. So that's three units of those, each of them three bases of the Asnuri, three bases of the Retainers. Um, gone for a four-base unit of Turkmen mercenaries, average unprotected experienced bow, and a six-base unit of the skilled versions you can have. Gives, gives a little bit of mobile shooting power, and indeed six. I've then gone for four units of the Spearmen. Uh, an eight, let's count up. Two eights, two sixes. I prefer them all to be eights, but points got in the way. Um, these are tribal close, average protected short spear. So they're, they're just a big load of stodge. 
Um, one of the one of the sixes is poor and unpro- and combat shy. Uh, again, that's just a, a points thing to get me to eleven tugs. That will that will stay out of the way. So you've got, you've got three units of stodge there that are just going to occupy space and occupy the opponents while the more mobile cavalry play around and we tee up the charging lancer as Nure. I went for two eights of the archers who are average protected, experienced bow. Um, I think they're quite, they're quite nice being protected. And again, in the context of this great raid thing, I think they could be very useful. I've then gone for four units of the skirmishing archers if you remember you've got a minimum on these 12 to 24 i've gone for all 24 four sixes one of them's poor the other three are average and they're all experienced bow so across the army you can put out a fair amount of shooting power and it just crossed my mind that with the tribal close spearmen being stodge and potentially a target for things like richard's skilled shooting mongols if you put those skirmishing archers in front of them, which they can always push along, it can really, um, really upset their day. Or, of course, they can go and play and sit in terrain. So I suppose I have to admit, whilst it's not, if you like, a Nick army, it's got some Nick bits in it because it does have some skirmishy, shooty cavalry and it's got other bowmen. But I, I, would, I, would, I would claim here it's not one of my normal armies. But I think it could be quite interesting to play, certainly in this theme we're talking about but again i would love your views on this just to mention putting the skirmishing archers in front of the spearmen the the only thing you have to worry about is if the enemy moves um to force the archers back um yes by the pushback uh because then your spearmen are going to be left with little option but to be charging um cavalry which is if it's case of skilled bow would be painful for them in sixes anyway yeah uh, that's a very valid very valid point um though, so, to be, though to be doing that kind of tactic <clears throat> your your flex are going to have to be in loose order aren't they so you're not running away as fast either and he's got a fair amount of cavalry there so it might be a trap. Yeah, well, I think whether the cavalry could do it, it would also depend on where you'd put the two blocks of eight archers as well, because if they're intermixed with the spearmen. Yeah, but if the cavalry are close to the spearmen, then I would be looking to get around those flanks and stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah. It, what with your always... Mitanni? Sorry, I mean your um, Mongol conquest. <laughs> with my Mongol conquest. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I think it's, it's a very, very good point, Richard. You know, you can, you can put those, those archers out front and think, oh, that'll keep the Mongol cavalry away and suddenly go, oh, hang on, my archers are now sitting behind my spearmen who are going to be shot at by these skilled shooters. So, yeah, yeah I think it's, it's certainly not a, a foolproof way of uh, either defending the spearmen or shooting at the cavalry. Yeah, I, I, I'm, my feeling is that this army falls between two stalls, that it's um, the spearman means that it doesn't quite have as much cavalry power as some of the other armies. And yet the what what are the four blocks of spearmen actually offering you? Um, um, to some degree, 
tugs that t use poison. There, there isn't actually that much left in the, you can take in the list, especially if you're doing it within the context of the the, the great yeah. raid. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that's your problem drawing up the list. Yeah, it's it's not a. As I said, I, you know, I think it could be. It's just a go, I say when I say it could be interesting to try it. it I don't think it'd be a take it to a competition. Try it. It'd be have a, the old friendly game with it. I think Listen. I'd be hoping my legendary general rolled a good um, skull at the opening um, dice roll, and I, I think it's an army I'd look to use in the mountains personally. Oh yes, I, I quite agree with you on that. Yes, and then if you could then roll a skull in his first combat as well, and. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, well, actually, just every skull, every combat thereafter would be useful. But well, on the principle that I'd be avoiding combat wherever possible, yeah. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> the skull you're rolling into your first combat is in about the tenth turn of the game. <laughs> It'll compensate for the five turns of all black cards you get with the legendary general. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. He's had all black cards. And he's sitting there going, "Why am I surrounded by Mongols?" <laughs> So yeah, it was yeah. So it, uh, it it was a somewhat. I did I did feel when drawing it up the it was somewhat limited by the options uh, that we'd set ourselves. You know, it, so it's uh, but then, yeah, that makes it quite interesting in that respect. Well, if, perhaps we should now ask 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 Matt because got somebody got an army he has actually used. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking, there, isn't it? It's, um... Right, I'm. I'm going to have to admit that I immediately did not follow my own recommendation that you know if I was going to do this for real, I'd take two internal Russian Allied generals because, frankly, the list was not going to work if I did that. To be blunt, but um, so I, I, I've ignored my own advice. So what what I've gone with is I've gone with a talented, instinctive um, army commander, a talented, instinctive Kipchak ally, uh, a competent, instinctive sub, and a mediocre sub. Um, I've ended up with uh, PBS cards of seven and scouting of six. So not, not bad. The, 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 probably going to lose to the Mongols, but so so. It's only a break of five, um, but you could get it to 11 if you went on the Richard route of um, blocks of four. But I, I, I felt the solidity of bigger units was probably more realistic for what I was going to try and achieve for this army if we were running this as a great rate. Um, theme so what i what i've what i've gone with is three units of the noble cavalry which are formed loose superior protected short spear melee expert three blocks of six um i've taken the lithuanian cavalry unit to be fair you could probably just swap that straight with a a, a standard russian cavalry uh average unit but uh, for the purposes of this uh i i i took the lithuanian so the cavalry formed flex Average, unprotected, unskilled javelin, short spear, shoot charge, melee expert. I, I took the minimum spearman the, 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 of the polk spearman, which was uh, a block of eight, uh, which I downgraded to poor, protected, short spear, shear wall, integral shooters, simply because I don't think the infantry had any significant impact on the very short campaign in the Battle of the Kalka River. There just seems no reasonable justification to think the infantry even got involved other than you know at the camp or 
rundown in the in the in the route that followed. Um, arrow fodder. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, unfortunately, it was arrow fodder when they weren't even being useful. So, uh, so then there were two units of Turks and Pensioneg uh, auxiliary, effectively cavalry, which are formed flex, average, unprotected, experienced bow, uh, and the second unit is skilled bow. Uh, you, you then get to the Kipchak Cavalry, which is nobles, which are formed, loose, superior, protected, unskilled javelin, short spear, shoot and charge. I, I have a question at some point why they are unskilled javelin. I would have thought they should be bow, but uh, they may be influenced by the Lithuanians, I guess, who also carried bows, but used javelins from horse. Um, and, and then there's also something called, a, I think it's pronounced Uzez which is a cavalry formed flexible average unprotected skilled bow unit so that's my tugs nine of them uh basically you've got two blocks of skilled bow so there's uh, 12 skilled horse archers in the army uh, uh in tugs sorry and um six unarmored um experienced bow there's also two blocks of kipchak horse archers skirmishers which are half skilled half experiences two blocks of six of those so all in all it's a, it's 11 uggs um if i was going to fight richard with it i'd be leading with the superiors fairly obviously and um probably wielding a large block of um unarmored bow as a not a blunt weapon, but at least, you know, try and stop him getting around my flanks and hope the superiors can actually nail jelly to a wall. Um, that's it, basically. Um, it's it probably is. not one I'd take to a competition, but I'd be quite keen to run that in a theme. It'd be interesting, shall we say. It's so, another one that probably wants to defend, isn't it? Narrow. Oh, well, certainly if you, in the context of fighting Mongols, for sure. Try and cut down, and as you say, then lead with your superiors who hopefully won't get shot up so much and i think justify what you were saying about okay you've only, you, it's only nine tugs there but to get 11 you have to split the units up and you need you probably need them as sixes to be resilient till they get to hopefully pin the pin the horse archers up against something they can't run through yes yeah yeah exactly that that, that, that was that was where my, my my brain went with that one so to speak um yeah, I'd, I'd give it a whirl. Um, what do you think, Richard? I, th I think your Mongols would probably cut it apart, quite frankly. I just don't think it's got the um, command and control to um, stop you. I think it would struggle a bit, certainly. Um, yeah, um, I think I think your comment about the Kipchak nobles, I think, is probably a fair one. Um, think they may have got caught between two stools there in the classification um but um, perhaps they would have the option of bow rather than javelin uh experienced bow perhaps from unskilled javelin but um um uh yeah there you go that's yeah, a classification right. issue uh, <laughs> You've got about a month and a half till you're supposed to do the next <laughs> release, Richard. So don't, don't I know it? Uh, <laughs> this, this, of course, is the period when I send you all sorts of emails about things I need. To, I think should be changed. Uh, 
I, I have to hold my hand up to that. I've been doing that as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. thank I you, think, guys. Yes, I had no. Yeah. I, I think I'm blocked on his server now. But anyway, it's, yeah, it pops up in Outlook. You know, start hassling Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Microsoft have it coded in. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I I think I'd agree with Matt on his view uh, that. Yeah, I'd, I'd prefer to use the Mongols against that army than that army against the Mongols. Okay. So it's uh, so to try and avoid the Kalka River. Okay, okay, folks. I think we've 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 covered an awful lot there about about the Great Raid um, with 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 Subatai and friends. I'm not going to try and mangle Mongolian names tonight. Um, so so thank you so much to Matt for for leading on that. And I think. As I said at the beginning, obviously the lists will be on the blog. Um, but I said at the beginning, we would have a bit of a retrospective on Deventio 4. So I think we shall, we shall move on to that now. Um, it's, I think, first up, we have to say a big thank you as a, once again to Will Denham for organising the competition, which I, I, I think we can say everybody thoroughly enjoyed at uh, Boards and Swords in Derby. And of course, to Manny and the crew at Boards and Swords for their excellent hospitality once again. So friendly, so helpful, you know, organising food and drink for us. Um, it's, just, it's just a great place. It's a really great atmosphere, I thought. Um, you know, Matt, hopefully you thought the same. Oh, oh, totally. It was my first time there, actually. And I was, oh, right. yeah, yeah, it was the first time, first time I managed to make, make one of those. And um, yeah, it was really good. Really enjoyed myself. Yeah. Oh yeah, the overall top event, and it is, there's another one arranged there um, in the first quarter or so of next year again by Will. So I'm certainly looking forward to going back there again. So I think I think maybe here uh, Matt and I can give you a quick give you all a quick heads up on the lists we took, how we did in brief. I think because we've uh, not to make the podcast too long. Um, Richard, I'm sure, can give us some nice, some cogent comments on where we went wrong and and why. Um, to be honest, Matt, because we 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 settled around mid-table mediocrity. I think it's fair to say. So, okay, Matt and I, I think we talked through the lists we took to the competition, um, why we took it, and maybe some bits and pieces about the games we fought. Um, Richard can make some cogent comments about where we went right and where we went wrong with our lists. Maybe even comment what he would have taken, because um, I think it's fair to say both you and I, Matt, we ended up in um, mid-table mediocrity territory. Yes, we did rather, didn't we? <laughs> Although, and listeners from the previous podcast maybe remembered, we both tipped each other to finish above each other, if you see what I mean. Uh, <laughs> and and I, it boils down to I was the slightly less mediocre out of the two of us. <laughs> But not by any great distance for bragging rights, I think it is fair to say. I, I was hoping you were going to say that you were both correct. <laughs> <laughs> that would take some doing. Um, <laughs> we might have had to question the scoring at that point, but obviously Will is, Will is far too competent to allow that to happen. So, yeah. And... Also, as well as mine and Matt's list, um, Hammy, who who won the competition, has kindly sent over his list for for us to pass on to everybody. And I think Richard is going to talk about that one. Um, but I tell you what, I'll start off with mine. 
<laughs> just cost costs I'm talking at the moment. I took early Carthaginian. Oh, for, just for those who don't know, this is basically a classical themed competition. So we're looking at armies more or less from the, the classical age. Um, I don't have too many armies for this, but I took early Carthaginian um, army. I, I painted up a couple of years ago. Really like. I've done it entirely in Zeiston figures. Um, and it, for whatever reason, in my opinion, it's actually better army than the later Carthaginian. But, you know, that's just a personal opinion. Anyway, the command structure I've got, it's all instinctive generals, competent army commander, a talented and mediocre sub and a talented ally general who is a Numidian ally. Um, I'm only allowed coastal terrain, got poor unfortified camp. Um, I come in at 9994 points with a PBS of six and a scouting of four. The scouting of four is reasonably respectable in a classical period. I've got a six base unit of Punic chariots, formed loose, superior protected, experienced javelin, short spear, devastating charges, melee expert, shoot and charge. <gasps> Inhale. <laughs> Always takes a long time to say that. A four base unit of companion cavalry, formed loose, average protected, unskilled javelin, short spear. They're essentially there to do a bit of skirmishing. Sacred band infantry, drilled close, superior protected, long spear, shove, shield cover. They're a, a bit of punch, a fair amount of punch in a way, and are, for, along with the chariots are really the only proper punch in the army. Three eight base units of African spearmen, formed close, average protected, long spear. That's it, no shield cover, no shove. Unit of Spanish, tribal loose, average protected, impact weapon, eight. Eight Ligurians, tribal loose, average protected, experienced javelin, short spear. Experienced javelin is quite a nice one. A lot of troops like that get unskilled. And my last tug is Numidian nobles, cavalry form flexible, average protected, experienced javelin. Um, they've actually been downgraded from superior. And for those of us who remember back to last year, um, the, the, effectively that is the compromise I've had to make from this list from last year due to the points changes made mainly to the Numidian light horse, who quite correctly got more expensive. I've got five Sugs, one of Libyan javelinmen, um, average unprotected, experienced javelin combat shy, a six. Six Balearic slingers, average unprotected, skilled sling, combat shy, very useful. And three units of aforementioned Numidian best light horse, cavalry skirmisher, average unprotected, skilled javelin, combat shy. So in many ways, the army, it's usually skirmishes, especially the Numidians, to, to hopefully prepare the way for the chariots and the sacred band to do their business. The African spearmen, they're solid enough. They can hold up a lot of troops. Um, Spanish and Ligurians give you something that can together sit in a piece of terrain if you have to. And they're not completely useless out in the open. And the Ligurians having experienced javelin is quite useful. Um, one weakness I thought it had going to the competition, um, in classical competition, you can meet quite a lot of troops who are dev charger. Um, and those African spearmen are not great against those. They can suffer. Um, and if you meet elephants, as I did in my first game, those African spearmen are really quite vulnerable because they're formed, not drilled. So before I just give some brief stuff on the battles, I'll just throw that for Richard is already looking quite puzzled. 
or, or just trying to trying to work out how you can be polite, perhaps. <laughs> um, I mean, my my reaction to it is um, it's it's an army I've I've not quite found clicked, um, and I've always struggled to figure out why. Um, uh, I I I don't know that three units of skirmishing light horse can achieve a great deal. Um, I've I've found they do or they can, if, um, and three three does be, seem to be a magic number. I've tried it with two, um, because it's javelin in the shorter range. You 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 do tend to not do so well. The third unit just seems to help, at least when I use it. Yeah, I, 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 when I've used the light horse, I've tended to use them in combination with quite good cavalry, and, and I've stuck with two in those scenarios. But um, Makes sense. I mean, it, it's horses for courses, as I suppose, if you're riding one, you would say. Um, <laughs> uh, and as you say, uh, the, the African spearmen, um, they're not great against the dev charger. They're not great against elephants, and also uh, they're not great against Romans, which in a classical uh, competition can be a real pain. Well, lots of things are not particularly good against Romans, if they, particularly of the superior melee expert variety. Um, but I mean, they they are considerably more expensive. Mm. Um, so yeah, the um, I, I agree with. If you're going to take the chariots, take them in sixes. Uh, um, of um, those dev charger max, but shoot and charge. But you you're putting a lot of points in two baskets, really: the Punic chariots and the sacred band. Um, and that means the rest of the army tends to suffer a bit. And that's my thoughts, anyway. Yeah, that, that's fair. No, it's, it's true. Those two are your punch, and if they get neutralised in any way. You're in for a long day, and it's so a, how did it's a you get neutralised? <laughs> Sorry. So how did you get neutralised? Um, well, one against Roger Whittam's Indians, which had a good war wagons interleavered between his infantry units, some elephants, um, and we just bogged down basically. Um, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. We both had a fair amount of shooting going on, but managed to do very little. Um, I actually blame Sid for this because because during the, this was in the first game and during this Pete um, Pete Entwistle and Sid were playing and Sid just rode straight over the top of Pete in an outrageous display of dice rolling um, and I, I just I just thought he sucked all the 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 skulls out of our game the game I was having with Roger that's my excuse anyway <laughs> yeah I, I mean I I've, I saw Roger's army composition I. I felt that's an army that's picked not to lose rather than an army picked to win, and they don't do well in competitions, and they have the danger of dragging down your your opponent's scores as well, I'm afraid. Uh, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the game. Um, uh, just, before, yeah, just before I ask Matt what he thinks of my list, I'll just briefly go over the other games, which was second game was against John Munro with Galatian. Um, and the Galatians can basically fight better than my army, and did. <laughs> so, in, inclu including his close formation um, Galatian warbands in the rough going against my loose formation troops. <laughs> oh, ouch. Yes. <laughs> Mind you, they've got melee experts, so they're not... They, they were the feared warriors, I presume. Oh, he, he basically had not, 
yes, he basically had an army entirely of feared warriors, and I certainly feared them. Um, the third game, again, Kurt Dukes, who had a Gallic Federate Roman. Um, I beat that, partly aided by the fact that half his army just seemed to subsist on black and white cards for a huge amount of the game. Um, and I, I should say at this point, Kurt just took it completely stride. In fact, until the end of the game, I didn't know how bad his cards were. He was so unflappable. <laughs> but, yeah. And the last game was against uh, Pete Riley with his ancient Brits. And, yeah, it was good, but we, we ran out of time, basically. And I think fourth game, and we were stuck. We were mid-table mediocrity. And I was called away for a number of umpire calls because that always happens in the last game. But it was, it was fun and, and all sorts of things. But Anyway, Matt, what, what was your view of my army? Well, I have to say, I like it. But there again, I've got a Syracusian Greek, which is almost oh, yes. the same. You know, barring the chariots, it, it's pretty much the same style list. I mean, I, I rely on Gallic mercenaries rather than the chariots to give me the uh, the other punch unit. But uh, no, I, I, I like it. Um, Presumably, you don't have Numidians in your Syracusian Greek army either. Yeah, yeah they're allowed a, a Numidian ally. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, yes. what, um, what's his name who invaded Africa? Oh, yes. Oh, it's that army. Okay, yeah. Now yeah, yeah. Yes, so, so, so it almost is the same. I just don't get the chariots, unfortunately. Yes. Fair enough. Gathicles, was it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah that's... That, that, yeah. It is, yes. Um, so. uh, so move on to your army, because um, I, I have posted tales of my, my um, battles on my blog, so... Won't dwell too long on those. Well, um, yes, um, Parthians. Mm, what what can I say? Right. Um, I went with Indo-Parthian rather than pure Parthian because Parthian just doesn't work. <laughs> well, where have I heard that before? Uh, um, basically, uh, pure Parthian doesn't work because it has no skirmish troops. It has no delaying troops. Sorry, it has skirmish troops, but it does not have any delaying troops. It has no flexible cavalry or loose order cavalry that you can go park in front of an enemy unit. So I went with Indo-Parthian because it's allowed a Kushan ally. Yeah, all right. My, my, my list is a bit special and I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to <laughs> put my hand up to that one. Um, so basically what you've got, you've got a talented army commander, a talented Kushan uh, ally, competent instinctive and a mediocre instinctive um, sub-generals. Uh, they're all instinctive. Um You've got two blocks of six superior cataphracts, which are tribal close, armoured horse, fully armoured, long spear, dev chargers, shove. Uh, and then you've got three blocks of average cataphracts, which are in blocks of four. Um, add to that two Kushan horse archer tugs, which are formed flexible, average, unprotected, experienced by two blocks of six. Then you've got almost as many sucks uh you've got the experienced javelin combat shies um in i, I can never pronounce it is it cantabrian yes yes thank you I, oh, for some reason i always overthink that one sorry richard what's that from cantabria in spain yeah I didn't know that. I learned something new every day. Thank you. Uh, uh, then there's Kushan horse archers, which are downgraded to poor, unprotected, unskilled bow, combat shy. Four of them, basically, they I, I, they gave me enough to get me an extra scouting point. Um, and then you've got four internal horse archer units, um, 
again, blocks of six, combat shy, um, half of Cantabrian. So um, that, that, that's the list, basically. 11, uh, 13 Uggs, uh, break of four, uh, scouting of five. Um, as I say, um, the reason I went with the Indo-Parthian was because then I had something to delay with because basically I was relying on pushing uh, five units of cataphracts down somebody's throat and hoping they did the job while skirmishing with um, all the light horse. So I'm open to abuse. Go on, let me have it. <laughs> it's, it's to me, the, the problem is it's a one-trick pony um, in that it's a Cantabrian punch. Um, you're not going to win a game purely by your horse archer capability. Um, and I don't like those fours of average. I found they break too easily. Um, and go, taking them as sixes means you're down to six tugs. Then you're three to break. That's even scarier. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, it, I, that's my problem with it. I find it doesn't work. To me, to me, the Parthian that does work is actually the one that has almost no cataphracts and relies on the horse archery. Um, and I take just the single tug of cataphracts. Uh, but that's a different beast, certainly. I'll accept I, that. I, I agree with Richard on the fours of cat, average cataphracts. Especially in this army, you, you, you cataphracts probably win or lose it. Um, I think I'd have been tempted to have two sixes of the average, and that's actually split the Kushan horse archers into th into three fours, and just accept that they're almost filler. Your cataphracts are going to do. You got two superiors there, two superiors and two averages in sixes. It's still a, a pretty hefty punch. It's yeah. I mean. I, I, I must admit, I, I, I have never been able to think of a Parthian-type army that I would want to use. I, I have to say, if it, if it wasn't for the fact that I was trying to see if I could get a Parthian one to work, I can do a much, much better armor by using an early Sassanid Persian mm. with the same principles. Yeah. Um, I, I, yes. Because your cataphracts are formed. Your, your your horse archers are internal, but that that's by the by. Yeah. What I will say though is, I almost have not had that much fun with an army at a competition than I have with this one. Even though <laughs> I had, even though I had four mediocre scores, every single game was thoroughly enjoyable against great opponents. It was just, it's an army that makes you think. Who did you? God, play? you had to think. Uh, I played in the first round. I played uh, uh, Roger Pitfield with his Imperial Romans. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 I lost focus. Fair enough. I, I, I got so embroiled in trying to work out what I was doing with the light horse and stuff. I just didn't put enough zap into the uh, into the cataphracts. Um, it, but so it was an irritating game in the sense that I, I just wasn't on form. Uh, but yeah, great game. It really was. Um, um, I think I didn't have a single light horse left, and I think half of his were dead and a couple of his... Yeah, it was just... It was brilliant. It was a really good game. <laughs> it was crazy, but it was a really good game. Um, then round two, 
was Hammy, the eventual winner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he sucker punched me in his deployment, quite frankly. I totally outscouted him and I still fell for it. So again, <laughs> I told you I was going to have a bad Saturday and I, I, I really did. But no, it, it, again, it was one of those nip and tuck game, uh, a lot of um, almost psychological warfare with the, the cards being discarded and stuff. And um, yeah, really enjoyable. Uh, I had no problems losing badly to him on that one. It was, uh, I think it was 10, 15. I think, I think that was the 10 for me. Yeah. Great game. Really good. And then, um, Sunday was, um, Stephen Steads with his, um, Thraco Roman, uh, with Roman ally, which is almost by, and again, brilliant game. Really enjoyed it. Um, we, we, we ran out of time. Um, I think he was about a charge off of my camp, and I think I was close to his. Um, I'd blown through one flank. He'd blown through my flank, and it was, um, yeah, uh, again, uh, that was a really good game. And then I thought, well, I was going to say fought Mr. Munro's Galatians more, sort of slowed him down for a bit. <laughs> um, uh, I, I made an error in deployment which basically forced me to put all my cataphracts into his infantry and left his cavalry free to just muller my light horse, which is yeah, such is, such is life as it goes. And he, yeah, he flattened me. Um, I, I put a very big hole in his infantry. I mean, there were, you know, but it wasn't enough. So yeah, again, good game. So uh, yes, barreled in, I think almost precisely into the middle of the table with that. Okay. Richard, do you want to just uh, talk through Hammy's army? So, yeah, Hammy, the eventual winner, as I understand it. Yes, it took indeed. Took a Skiri army of 380 um, CE. Um, so this is the uh, a Skiri army that, um, had, along with the Huns and the Karpi, or Karpadakai as they're known in the sources by this time, um, wreaked some merry havoc um, till I think my history remembers I they got rather badly mauled in the end um, so we, we've got um, uh, two lots of scary cavalry form loose average protected short spear melee expert um, in sixes uh, four units of Huns uh, two upgraded to be unprotected skill bow, the other two remaining unprotected experience bow, all melee expert, all form flexible cavalry. Um, along with that, we've got the Carpi ally, uh, which is two units of warriors with unskilled javelin, short spear, shoot and charge, tribal loose average protected. Um, they're in sixes. Uh, the warriors with Falks are in a nine. They're the average protected devastating charge of melee expert uh, and a unit of six nobles who are the same but superior. Along with that, we've got two units of unprotected poor experienced bow combat shy archers um, who basically want somewhere to um, hide away from the main battle, I would imagine, and a unit of um, another unit of Skiri Cavalry by the looks of it, so he had three of the sixes, uh, along with a unit of Skirmishing Archers, just ordinary nine of average unprotected experience, bow combat shy. Uh, on first sight, nothing particularly magical. 
uh, a mediocre instinctive army commander and two talented allies with the competent instinctive sub. So you've got two commanders for the Skiri with five cards covering the three cavalry and the two archers. And you've got the two talented each covering four units with the um, uh, for the two allies. Uh, PBS of five, so you're going to only be struggling in the PBS stage, but a scouting of four, so that's quite respectable. Um, as I say, at first sight, doesn't look particularly much, um, but I can imagine played well. It's actually quite a dangerous combination. You've got the skilled bow cavalry that can skirmish. They're flexible, so you can throw them out on a wing and cause some havoc there. Um, use the cavalry in combination with the carpi. I'd imagine that could do quite a lot of damage. Um, uh, you've got tug break point of seven. Um, you've got plenty of opportunity to get stuck in. Um, it reminds me actually of the armies that Alistair Harley took in the more early days of uh, make competitions and did very well with it as well. So, um, yeah, um, perhaps not at first sight the army that you think might win a make competition, but um, an army that handled well, I think, is very dangerous, would be my view. It was. <laughs> well, he, he wasn't. So it must have been. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a it's it's an army where the the actual army it is the Skiri is just the sort of glue that holds together the two allied contingents in a way. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's the Skiri were one of these Eastern Germanic tribes that sort of were influenced a bit by the Goths and. Uh, um, sat on the edge of the Pannonian Plain, I think, from memory. Yep, I think it is, yeah. But it's it's definitely one of those, in the hands of a player who's worked out how to use it, it's greater than the sum of its parts. It's, uh, yeah, because I, I like you, Richard, I think somebody had plonked that in front of me at the start of the competition, I'd have said, mm, OK, interesting, I can see it can do well in a couple of games, but it'll be mid-table mediocrity. And then it wasn't. <laughs> so you know, it's a that's well, what makes makes so interesting. It well, this is this is it, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know if you get any last thoughts on that, uh, Matt. Um, it, it it's it seems to be a bit of a theme for this year. There's various armies that have appeared, and people have gone, mm, it's okay, and it's done really well. But no, Hammy, Hammy. He understood it, its composition, and yeah, it was a it was a pleasure to play actually, and uh, yeah, it's given me some ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, just to sort of just wrap this Deventio bit, just um, just go down the the top few armies that were there. Hammy obviously Skiri won it. Sid with Asiatic successor came second, but you know Sid's always there and thereabouts. Uh, Lee Sanders was third with Spartan Slave Revolt. Graham Wilmot, fourth, Dacian, Dave Parrish, fifth, classical Indian Morian, Pete Entwistle, Turk Lingi, then John Munro Galatian, Paul Cummings, 
Hunnick, and then Ray with his new Midians. So you know, had a had a real mix up at the top, and then you know there were other lots of other armies used: Republican Romans, Imperial Romans, ancient Brits, um, Gothic. There was another Spartan slave revolt. So you know, it was it was a, it was a mix. So and and, and bringing up bring up the rear, Simon Cooper with Seleucid in his first competition. Um, I think he, he, I believe he enjoyed himself. He's looking forward to coming back again. So I think, as I said, I think it just uh, provided a, a really good competition all round. So just aware that time is ticking on and perhaps we should bring this podcast to a close here. Um, although I did a hint at the beginning, Richard, just anything from that SOA conference that you went to that might prove of interest in the future for Megas? Yeah, well, just very briefly mentioned, I, I put on a, a game of Meg Pacto um, using 28 millimeter troops on a six foot by four foot table. Um, uh, Spartans versus Athenians. Um, it's, it's I've been developing a Peloponnesian campaign based on the death and or victory board game and the map in that and uh, um, that got six players and got quite a bit of interest. Um, we had three excellent presentations, um, one by Dr Simon Elliott on Rome's Lost Legion, the Ninth Hispania, uh, going through the four theories um, that are very briefly that it was lost in Northern Britain, the Eagle of the Ninth, um, a theory that it was lost in Germany, um, less likely, the only evidence for its presence in Germany is actually a vexillium or, or detachment of the legion, not the legion itself. Um, that it was lost in Cappadocia in 160. We know a Roman legion was lost in Cappadocia in 160. We don't know which one it was, but unfortunately there's no evidence to suggest that the ninth was ever there. And the final theory, which is fairly recent, is that it may have actually revolted against Hadrian. Um, and there is some evidence of skulls found in the Woolbrook um, that were um, decapitated, the top of the head, um, which is a Batavian. And, um, and we know there were Batavians in um, Hadrian's army. Um, and it's just possible that the legion was um, basically written out of the history books for its revolt against Hadrian. Um, if you wanted me to take a bet, I'd still say that it was lost in the north of England is the most likely. Um, but unless something um, new gets uncovered archaeologically, I think that's that's the best we can say on that one. Um, so maybe a theme about Roman legions and Roman defeat, perhaps. Um, uh, secondly, there was an excellent presentation by Simon McDowell on the Battle of Adrianople, uh, which will be the Society of Ancients Battle Day battle next year, um, which I hope to put on in Meg. Um, and maybe that will be a theme around uh, possibly that time for the podcast. Um, the third uh, presentation was on medieval leadership. 
and what the medieval sources say about leadership, which, quite frankly, you could include in a modern business course and uh, <laughs> probably run an MBA course based on it, because everything you would expect in a modern business course actually gets seems to get mentioned in medieval sources, um, which is very interesting and entertaining. Um, as well as that, there were lots of other games played in a whole variety of different rule sets and an excellent pre-dinner speech from Ben Cain, the fiction author, um, who um, uh, talked about his trek across Adrian's Wall dressed as a Roman uh, triari, and from which I picked up the advice, if you're going to trek across uh, Adrian's Wall, don't do it dressed as a Roman triari. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, uh, yeah, a good entertaining weekend had at Maddingley Hall uh, near Cambridge, which is a, was an excellent venue, I must say. OK, well, yeah, I think um, I think at some stage next year we can definitely do the Adrian Opal one. Um, fit in with the battle day. It's an interesting battle and uh, we've not really covered that bit of late Roman yet. So, OK, thank you, Richard. I think I think, as I said, no, we've 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 talked for quite a while now. Hopefully it's been of real interest to people. Army lists um, for your viewing and and, you know, any comments on that. As I said, I would be interested in hearing back just on the, the slightly different format this time, if it worked or it didn't, because um, ultimately what you, the listener, want, um, we want you to be interested in. So you know, the only thing I'll say before we go is next Meg competition is, of course, Warfare, now held at Ascot. It's moved from Reading where it used to be. And our theme there is biblical. So we expect to see loads of chariots and other troops as well, of course. So... Hopefully the nice new venue has allowed us a bit more room than we've traditionally had. But so hopefully see a good number of you there. And no doubt we shall be covering it in some shape or form in a future podcast. To say thank you very much as ever to Matt for doing all that history work. Richard for all the all the all the cogent comments as ever and 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 of course all, all that he ever does around Meg. So uh, that point. Until next time, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers.